The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Holy Father, we stand and sit here before you as a people in need. We have many physical needs, I'm sure, but our greatest needs are those in the spiritual realm, in the, the inner parts of our being, in our hearts. Needs to come and find You as life. To come and find You as, as rest. The One for whom we were made. And, and bizarrely, insanely, the One from whom we run the only one in whom we can find rest. So I pray, God, would You come and and now here, would You overcome the insanity that is in us that leads us away and draw us back and show us some of Your sweetness and make us to be a people fastened tightly to You. Your church. Your bride. Your own. God, we open up Your Word this morning, and if You don't give life to it, it's words upon a page that we've read numerous times before. But if You would come here and give life to it, it would, it would breathe and it would live before us and it would change us. It would challenge us and comfort us and, and convict us and encourage us. And so I ask You, would You, as, as a way of meeting our need this morning, would You give life to Your Word? Father, commission Your Spirit to run through this room. He is always here present with us, but to run through this room in a different way, in a unique way, and stir us and enlighten us and convict us. Encourage us and motivate us and inform us and call us. Those here who don't know You, Lord, would You call them to You effectively? Make it happen. Draw them. And those of us who do, call us back. You are people dependent on You, and so I pray, would You move here in our midst, and would You move in my heart and give life to me as I attempt to do the impossible, open up Your Word to Your people and make sense of it. I don't have the ability. It's impossible for me. I struggle with it myself. I struggle to understand it, and I struggle to apply it. But God Almighty, would You take these words coming out of my mouth And by Your Spirit, use them to change Your people. Build Your church. Cause it to rise up and grow and spread. And use it in Your hands to to give to Your Son His promised inheritance of the nations. Would You do this work and far more than I've thought to ask for? Would You do this work in our midst right now? And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we begin a new series in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so as to set the stage and create some context for 1 Corinthians, I'm going to have to give us some details and talk a little bit about what Corinth was and a little bit of, just a little bit of some ancient history. But don't, don't get lost in all of that. 
This is intended to lead us to God's text. But before we do that, I need, I need to give some context. But as I do this, you might at different places find yourself asking, is he talking about Corinth or America? Because in a number of ways, the, the resemblance is uncanny. Which is what makes 1 Corinthians particularly relevant to us. All of the Bible is always relevant. But Corinthians is uniquely, pointedly relevant because of the type of city that Corinth was and the way that it resembles the type of land that we live in today. It matches us in some interesting ways. Corinth was a city in in Greece, the country of Greece. And geographically, it was located at a very strategic place. It was located where the land came and narrowed together until it was only a few miles wide. And so with a port on either shore and the city in the middle, seaborne commerce could come from one side and leave on the other side and not have to make the much longer and in certain seasons much more dangerous journey around the whole bottom of the rest of Greece. And this geographic location made Corinth. Even when the Roman Empire conquered and destroyed it, the geography just demanded that there be a city there. It was just too prime of a location for there not to be. And so the city lay in ruins for a while, but in 44 B.C., Julius Caesar resettled it. Primarily with freedmen from the city of Rome. Freedmen, former slaves, who had been freed. There were a few others, but the largest contingent of people that came in and resettled this city people who had been slaves, and they came with nothing except the determination to never be mastered by anything again. They came with nothing but their freedom and the opportunity that this special land created. Fertile land, shore to shore with an urban area in between. And with determination and some skill (coughs) and some freedom, They pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps and created a prosperous land. A rich city. They did it. Starting from nothing, they did it. And so they came to value hard work and self-made men, initiative, ingenuity, and the freedom to use it. This is Corinth. A city that was new by world standards, filled with money that was earned and not inherited, which is significant. These are self-made people. And as places where money is to be made often do, it had attracted people from everywhere. There was an initial core that had some common roots of Rome, but it attracted people from everywhere of all different shapes and sizes and colors and flavors. They came and settled there. And so this is a rapidly diversified place, very cosmopolitan. It would rival any modern American city. One commentator said it is New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas all wrapped together. And with all of those views, with all those different ideas and all those religious perspectives, who in the world can know what's right? And who could be so arrogant as to presume to know what's right? Now, maybe within your own little ethnic enclave, 
Maybe if you're, you're a Persian or you're a Greek or you're a Roman or you're an Egyptian, maybe you guys can, can have some standards that you all agree on or your own little religious perspective. But there is no room to force that on someone else and really no need to because really what we're about is money. This city exists to do business. And all your religious perspectives are just going to get in the way of that. Let's leave that aside or marginalize it. And you can, you can deal with that yourself, but not us as a whole. This is postmodern relativism long before modernism. This is Corinth. And it's the United States. But it's ancient Corinth. And about 95 years after it was founded, a man named Paul came to town. The book of Acts describes some of his ministry there. Roman records enable us to, to date his time there to be about 50 or 51 A.D. And he was there about 18 months. God used him to start a church there and to plant it and it grew and prospered. And then after he left, he stayed in touch with that church trading letters back and forth, one of which we know as 1 Corinthians. This is going to be the study of uh, our, our focus in study for the next while here. And here's why. They're like us, these Corinthians. In some of those ways I was just talking about, but more importantly, they're like us in the type of church that all of that produced which is where it gets difficult for us. Because in saying that the type of church produced in Corinth is like us, is I'm not complimenting. I'm trying to be careful, but I'm not complimenting. To say we're like a biblical church in this case is not a compliment. Now, it is a church. God is at work there. God is at work here. And there is a lot to rejoice over and be thankful for. Clearly, God is doing great things. Paul's going to begin, 1 Corinthians, we'll see next week, by acknowledging some of that and rejoicing over it. So I don't want to put a huge cloud over everything going on here. However, much of this letter is a constant struggle to need, like you need dough, to need the gospel into life. To stitch the gospel into the fabric of everyday living where it had been previously inappropriately excluded. To move it from just something that we know to something that we live. That's, that's the essence of what 1 Corinthians is about. The gospel applied where it always should have been but had not been. 1 Corinthians is just as much about the gospel as the book of Romans is. If you, if you know your Bible, Romans is kind of the pinnacle of the gospel. 1 Corinthians is just as much about the gospel, but it's a little different, and that's the gospel applied into particular nitty-gritty situations, some of which will resonate very directly with us. But all of them will help us to think about the particular nitty-gritty situations in our lives and apply the gospel to them. So 1 Corinthians is going to be very helpful for us as a church. Maybe convicting in some ways, but it will be very helpful. In particular, because as you look through this book, what you see is constant evidence of division. Sometimes it's division within the church, as this little group and this little group and this little group 
conflict with each other about practice or theology. Sometimes it's a division of the whole church from Paul. Which is a problem because to be divided from Paul is to be divided from God. When Paul teaches, he's teaching the Word of God. And to set that aside is trouble. So there's a lot of division in this book. But again, this book is not about conflict resolution. It's about the gospel applied. The absence of which had led to a lot of division and conflict. So we're beginning, so kind of plug it in, we're beginning a study on the gospel applied, which will affect a lot of division and discord and things of that nature. But we'll reach wider than that. We picked it up and started today in the first three verses, which really are a, a, a standard greeting to a letter. Letters in that day would, would begin from so-and-so to so-and-so greetings. Paul takes that very same format and he modifies it a little bit. And he modifies it in some ways that, that will teach us, that will kind of point something out for us. Set us in a right mindset to receive the whole rest of this letter. So really, just like in a regular letter, letter the introduction is kind of preparatory. Well, this sermon this morning is preparatory. It's preparing us to receive all that's coming. To put us, I hope, I pray, to put us in the right mindset to listen to what God says through His Apostle. So here, here's my main point for the rest of this morning. As recipients of God's call, we must be careful how we respond to Him. That we must be careful. I'm, I'm trying to set us in on, on a path, give us a perspective to prepare us. We must be careful how we respond to what God has called us to. I'm going to unpack that in three stages, but first let me read the passage. It's the first three verses of First Corinthians chapter 1. He begins, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our passage for this morning. We begin with, with God's activity, with God's work here. So here's my first point. God's single church is formed by God's sovereign call. God's single church it's formed by God's sovereign call. There's a lot in that sentence that I'm going to unpack here. Verse 2 cites the initial recipient of the letter, to the church of God that is in Corinth. And, and the word church, we, we have that in our minds, the very religious word, it wasn't. It's a very secular word. It just means called out assembly. It would be used in, in common language to describe a, a town meeting Leaders of a town assembled together. You might recall when we were in Deuteronomy that it's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe the people of God assembled 
in the desert. It just means a gathered together people, an assembled people. And right off, in describing this assembly and saying he's writing a letter to them, we get a real quick shot across the bow. Whose church is this? Paul's? He founded it. Probably his, right? Or Apollos's maybe. He was the first, what you might call, pastor. He had a long-standing ministry after Paul left there. And he sunk deep roots. Don't long-term pastors get to call the shots? I'm smiling. (laughs) Don't founding members, I mean the people who are there when the thing comes together, don't they get to organize it and then run it as they please? Maybe the, the original and still remaining members who were there longer than Apollos was even, maybe they're in charge. Obviously, no. The church of God belongs to God. I know I'm saying something obvious here, but stop and think about this, please, for a second. The church doesn't belong to us. We don't own it. We name it, we talk about it in common language as, as you know, my church. You know, which church is your church? Where do you go to church? It's God's church. He owns it, which means that He calls the shots that His Word is law. He is the one to be followed, not self, not some other charismatic leader. Any human person, any human leader is only to be followed as that person follows God who owns it. The church is, it's it's who owns it, who runs it, who declares its purpose, who declares its means. God does. That goes for the church in Corinth. Any church everywhere, because God has a single church. This this church in Corinth is joined together with churches in all other places. Verse 2 continues on to say, together with all those in every place. This is the church of God in Corinth, but there's a church of God in Rome. There's a church of God in Salt Lake City. There's a church. It's a single church represented locally, but it's one church that belongs to him. And the same rules apply everywhere. God has a single church which is formed by His sovereign call. Notice how the word call marks this passage. Paul's called by the will of God. The church is called to be saints together, verse 2. End of verse 2. They call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Say something three times in two verses. It should catch your attention. What's going on with call? What's the word call about? Well, it's got two different meanings here. One, to call upon someone. The church is a group of people who calls upon the Lord Jesus Christ. There's an allusion there to Joel chapter 2. We call upon the Lord. That is, we trust Him. We look to Him. We ask Him to act. We depend on Him to call upon Him. That's, that's something about our identity, which is slightly different than to call someone. There's a difference there. Call upon, 
and call. God calls Paul. God calls the church. Which is to say, He summons. He issues a summons. Come. I have something for you. Come here. By His own will, verse 1, God summoned Paul to be an apostle. He didn't issue a general call for volunteers. We read about this in the book of Acts. We see some of the details there about how God selected Paul, called him out, and made him an apostle. Very specifically, he's after him. And with the same specificity, brothers and sisters, with the same focused specificity, he calls the church, us. Look more closely at verse 2 to see this. The church in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. The word sanctified, think about that for a second. That word means those set aside, separated from. Very often it has the context of set aside to be cleansed or made holy. And the root word of sanctified is the same word that that translates holy. But at its root it means taken out from the common, from the ordinary. Sanctified. By whom? Because it's passive. They didn't sanctify themselves. Someone else set them aside, called them out. Who? Well, who called them to be saints? What we have going on in verse 2 is the same thing said twice in two different ways. Sanctified, that is, called to be saints. Root word behind saints is the same root word behind sanctified, the same root word behind holy. Saying the same thing. Sanctified, that is, called out by God. We don't call ourselves out. We don't set ourselves aside. There is a hole, and God calls people out of it, sets them aside from it. The church. This is God's work. His sovereign call. We see it here, incidentally. Look at the beginning of Romans. See the same thing there. Paul called to be an apostle. God's choice, making him an apostle. Romans chapter 1, verse 6. Those called to belong to Jesus Christ. Romans 1, 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. There's our same language again. Obviously not talking about every single person in Rome. It's a subset, those that He calls out. This is the sovereign work of God. To take people and summon them to something. Which means what? Why are we bothering to talk about this? Because this issue stands behind the whole book. Stands behind the whole book, many issues that Corinth is facing and many issues that we face. Because what we're dealing with when we, when we talk about God has a single church that He owns, that He called into existence by His own initiative, is under His own ownership. What we're talking about there is a question of authority. Who is in charge? 
Who owns it? Who made it? And we freedmen have a really difficult time with this question. Now, not officially. If I were to ask you, who made the church? Who owns a church? We'd all say God. But really what's going on really in our minds is, comma, and I will follow him as far as it seems reasonable to me. Which means that I'm still in charge. Instinctively. Not even overtly, but I'm still the one who's determining, is this or is this not acceptable? Will I or will I not take this teaching? Will I follow him there? Yes or no? Mm, You're weighing it yourself, which means that though you would verbalize God owns this, really, I own me. God called this into existence, really, I decided. I'm autonomous. I'm in charge. This is Corinthian thinking. This is American thinking. It's also human thinking. But layered on top of that, we have a culture that reinforces this all the time. We must be clear about something. The kingdom of God is not a democracy. With its citizens left free to choose to do as we please, to follow whomever we please, to listen to whatever we please, to pursue whatever goals we please, to do whatever seems most likely to be pleasing. We don't have that right. We didn't sign up. We were enlisted, drafted into something that He owns, not us. This fact must sit heavily on our minds. Must weigh heavily on us. It so often sits very lightly right on the surface. The authority of God. We hold it officially, but it is not deeply sunk into us. Which is why we have things happen. Like, if, if we read, as, as we will come to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul says to them, I wrote, 1 Corinthians 5 is about the, the immoral brother, and he's telling them how to handle that. If you read that closely, he says, I wrote to you in my former letter not to associate with such a one as this. And evidently you said, thank you for the advice. So I'm writing you again to say the very same thing. Where does that come from? that the Apostle of God would have to say something twice to them. Are we any different? They'd have to say something twice, three, four times to us. It comes from the fact that we unknowingly view ourselves as in the driver's seat taking advice from the Bible, from Paul. Thoughts, comments, which we will evaluate and then make a decision on. We cannot live like that. We don't want to live like that. You really, you really want this authority and ownership and initiative of God to rest very heavily on your heart because there's a reason that you want this. 
Think about this. I'm going to make this really simple to, to try to make it clear. Vast power differences between two parties. So think of something really vastly different in authority and power. Vast power differences sometimes produce resentment in the underdog. If the underdog wants to knock off the superior one. But it can also produce great humility and trust. Just think of parents and kids, especially young kids, who haven't yet wanted to knock off the... (laughs) Young kids especially revel in the fact and love knowing that there is a vast power difference. I can't, but Dad sure can. Whatever it is, Dad can, even when we can't. They, they want that. They're, there is produced in the, the underdog, if you will, a great humility. I can't, but thank goodness and a trust. He can help. That's the, the heart attitude that God once produced in us. And, he's, and He drives this difference, this drives the unawareness of the vast difference so as to produce in us a, a humility and a trust. Because, another step, because humble trust is a path that leads to places that proud, autonomous independence never sees. I'll say that again. Humble trust in God is the path that leads to places that proud, autonomous independence never sees, never catches a whiff of. Because humble dependence joins you to God and brings to your life communion with Him that the proud, autonomous one never experiences. It seems to stand on your own two feet, under your own power, seems good. And it is tragic. So God in goodness wants to make something really clear. I'm in charge. I have authority. I'm the one in power. Realize that. Humble yourself beneath me. Submit to me. And find life there. There is wonder in this. To get your mind around it. To have sink deeply into your mind and heart. The utter supremacy, power, and authority and initiative of God is a beautiful thing. Leads you to dependence on Him. Obedience to Him. A following of Him wherever He calls. And He does call us to something. Which leads to the second observation. But, but I have to ask you before I move on to the second one. Fundamentally, take just a second and ask yourself, proud or humble? Which are you? Proud or humble? If you're humble, you stand beneath God in a receiving attitude and He has a lot of good stuff to give you. But if you're proud, you stand over Him in judgment. 
God has a significant problem with people trying to hijack His church. There will be trouble if you pursue that path. Proud or humble? He calls us His church by His own initiative. He owns us. We're under His own authority. To what does He call us? That's the second point. God's church is called to holiness for the honor of Christ. God's church is called to holiness for the honor of Christ. Or I touched on verse 2. Let's consider it again. There are two parallel statements there. Those sanctified, those set apart, again, the root word of that is what? Holiness. Those called to be saints, root word, root word there again, holiness. Calls us to something. There's God's purpose to take some people out of the world and cleanse them, wash them, change them, renew them, to make them saints, holy ones. A pure, spotless bride. Fairly obvious there. And it should be familiar to you. If you were with us when we were working through Deuteronomy, you'll recall that again and again and again, what's God after in the world? He's after a holy people. He's after a place with a people that walk with Him. That display in their lives dependence on Him. That are holy and pure. And here it is accomplished in His church. Calls us out to be holy ones. This is a part of what God's doing in the world. And, and He's enlisted us in that. That's what He's after. To the honor of Christ. Verse 2 says, Sanctified in Christ Jesus. And as you read through this, again, the if something's repeated a number of times in a couple of verses, it should catch your attention. Verse 1, Apostle of Christ Jesus. Verse 2, Sanctified in Christ Jesus. Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Four times in those three verses. He doesn't even give us the short version, just Christ or Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. It's a lot of a lot of repetition there. He's trying to turn our minds to Jesus to help us right away to think about Him. And specifically, we are identified as those sanctified in Christ Jesus. What is He telling us there? To be made holy, set apart, to be made holy in Christ Jesus. There is no other way that happens. There is no other way that we are made pure, made holy, cleaned. This happens a couple of different ways. He calls us His church to holiness in, in two different ways. You might call them, as in theological circles, often called a positional way and a conditional way. 
He calls us to be positionally in our standing, what we are. Holy, saints, pure. Because of what God has done in sending Christ, because of what Christ did in accepting the cross, our sin is removed and He looks at you, Christian, as pure, holy, clean. You stand before Him cleansed. And also, moment by moment and day by day, He is about a work of cleansing you, washing you constantly so that in the condition of life today and tomorrow, you are, we might say, more holy. So you are holy and you are growing in holiness. And both of those things happen only by Christ. His work on the cross, this is where the gospel comes into this. His work on the cross is what removes sin and guilt from you to make you stand pure and cleansed. And what He has done on the cross is what fills our minds and removes the taste off of our lips for sin so that we reject that day by day by day and grow in holiness. Let me say that again because this is important. You walk through the day lured and enticed by sin. And how God grows you in holiness, Christian, is by reminding you of the work He has done to save you and causing you to marvel at who He is and all of His goodness so that as you look at that and look at the temptation of sin, progressively your tastes change. And you say, this is much better than that. No. And you choose Him. You hold fast to Him. And you took a step in holiness. That's sanctification in Christ Jesus. Both in your position and in your condition. Both of which honors Him. He's called us to be holy to the honor of Christ. Which means what? Now, I think that probably at at this point, most Christians in the room are saying something like, sure, yes, of course, I understand. Because you do understand. This is not new to you. You understand that God wants us to walk with Him, that He wants us to pursue purity, that the cross has made that possible. You get all that. Well, the Corinthians did too. So let me put a little finer point on this. Because when we're talking about holiness, purity, obedience, Christ-likeness, whatever kind of word we want to put on there, Paul, there's going to be a lot of details to follow in 1 Corinthians. Paul's going to teach us a lot of what that looks like. But here's something that's a little difficult, that was especially difficult for the Corinthians and is difficult for us. Paul's also going to model what that looks like. So if you have your Bible in front of you, which I hope you do, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'm going to read a number of verses. And what you should be thinking while I'm reading this is, he is describing an aspect of what holiness looks like. And I'll explain 
what I mean after I read it. I'm going to begin reading in verse 9, and I'm going to read down through verse 17. And it will become apparent as I get towards the end why this applies to us. For I think, says Paul, that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. I have become your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Anybody want to sign up? You have to. This is what you have been called to. When Paul says, these are my ways that I teach everywhere in every church, be imitators of me, He is not really asking for volunteers. He's saying this is the assignment. Which the Corinthians balked at. In their minds, they they had a way of evaluating what a proper teacher, someone who's issuing some instruction and calling for followers, what he should look like and what he should be calling them to. And that ain't it. No different for us. If we're honest, I suspect that what you really want is you want to be called to triumph and victory and plenty, abundance, and beauty and goodness. We do not want to be called to nakedness and shame and scorn, the refuse of the world, stuff that people scrape off the bottom of their shoes. That's what He's called us to. I don't want any part of that. But that's what the holiness to which He's called His church looks like. Because that's what Christ looks like. When reviled, how did he respond? First Peter 2 in your mind? When scorned, how did he respond? Turn the other cheek. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head. No friends in the world. Crucified all alone. 
That's what he calls the apostle to. To fill up the sufferings of Christ in our eyes. And then that's what he, through the apostle, commands us to walk in as well. That is difficult for us. We are Americans. We don't like that. Now, careful. What I am not saying, what Paul is not saying, is that there's anything better about being homeless or broke. What's at issue in all of that? It is not that we become better somehow by giving away all of our money or that we become better by losing all of our clothes and when, when people just make fun of us and, and scorn us, that that somehow earns us brownie points. That, that's not the issue. The issue is... What? Can you fill in the blank? The issue is self, life, and rights versus a dying to self. A giving up of all demands. Christ was God in heaven forever and ever and ever past, but did not count the right to be worshipped as God, something to be held onto, but let go of that, and came to earth as a servant, submitted to death. Calls Paul, a rabbi, a learned man. Let me show you how much you must suffer for my sake. Calls us to the same. And Christ is honored when this is produced in our life because that does not ever come from our flesh. When the church, when when you and I, when Christians become a people who lay down our own lives and our own demands and our own rights, when that happens in us, you can be sure that God is at work. Because that is not natural. That does not come from the flesh. You can be sure that if if I will let go of all the things in which I usually find life, that I'm finding life somewhere else. This honors Christ. And it causes the Gospel to run. The vine to spread. Both in our lives and to others who see us living off of someone else other than all the stuff they usually live on. So when I say, here in the second point, that that what He has called us to, the church, what He's called us to is to be holy for the honor of Christ, what 1 Corinthians is telling us is what He's calling you to is a dying to yourself for the honor of Christ. Which, if you think about it, fits right in with all the discord. Because what causes fights and quarrels among us? We want something, our rights. This is James 4.1. We want something and we don't get it, so we go to war. If I surrendered my rights and let go of them, there would be no fighting. He's going to call us in this book consistently. Lay down your rights freed men, and become slaves to Christ. Dying to Him, but finding life in Him. That is what He calls us to.
And so right here at the beginning, the letter opens and we're faced with a question. He owns the church. He called the church out by his own initiative. He calls it to holiness for his own honor. Which means he calls us to die to ourselves for his honor. So the question, are you up for that or not? Because if we're up for our own choice in our own church for our own purposes and means, there's going to be trouble. Not with me, with him. This is hard. This is hard. And to help us with that, he gives us the third observation. Third observation comes from verse 3. God's church is amazingly blessed. God's church is amazingly blessed. This is, as I said already, verse 3, just like the first two verses, it's, it's following closely the standard format of a letter, how, how a letter would begin. From so-and-so to so-and-so, greetings. And greetings in Greek is very close to the word grace. It's not the same, but it's close. And so Paul turns it just a little bit. He uses the same general format, but he turns this word, and then he adds in a Hebrew element and peace. And why does he do that? Just to be cute? No, he turns it and adds in this other element because he knows, I think, that what he's raising here in seed form are some things that are going to be a little difficult, particularly knowing his audience. And so he wants to also sound a little bit of a, of a hint of some of the wonder of it all. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace. What is grace? Well, the de- definition, it, it's an unmerited, undeserved blessing or favor. Grace to you, the church. Peace to you, the church. The peace is a gracious gift from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ to you, Christian, to the church. You work on those terms in reverse. He gave us peace with Him. Why did we need peace? You know this. You know this. Because before, we had been at war. There's a fiction out there that human beings are born kind of pursuing God and and interested in Him and and trying to please Him. In fact, we are hell-bent against Him. The Bible says repeatedly, there is no one who seeks God. No, not one. 
We may create a God and seek that, but we do not pursue the real God. We are set against Him, and that stiff-arming from us produces, invites, warrants the wrath of God against sin and against us who cling to it and revel in it, in fact. There is animosity and war there that we could not fix, but God graciously, in an undeserved, unearned way, God addressed, God fixed, God gave peace to you. When He gave you Christ. When He sent Christ to the earth and sent Him to the cross to die to pay for sin, He made peace with you, Christian. So you stand before Him, closed up with Him, and accepted. Which should stir you. It is sometimes far too familiar to us. It should stir you. I am at peace with God. God. The one who from birth I offend, He has made made peace with me. All because of Christ. I didn't do anything. I didn't do a little bit and He picked up the rest. I was running the other way and He reached out and grabbed me and brought me home. He made peace with you. What a gracious gift. And then along with that first gracious gift, He gives you more and more and more and more and more and more. Forever. There is something Marvelous that happened at the cross. God at the cross in God come to earth, humbled and crucified. Foolishness to some and an offense to others, but to those called the wisdom and the power of God to save. Something happened at the cross that has unlocked a massive storehouse of blessing that is sliding out. The mound is so high, you open the door and it's sliding out on you and will never stop. It's going to bury you forever. Blessing upon blessing. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Church, you're buried in it. What a blessing from God. Yes, He has owned you. Yes, He has obligated you. And so, the question that I asked earlier, I could ask it just like I did. He has owned you. He called you by His own initiative. And He calls you to a life of dying to self. Are you up for that? Or I could turn the question and say, He has owned you and made peace with you and He's called you to a life of receiving bountiful blessing upon blessing forever. Are you up for that? It's the same life. What do you want? That's what He has called you to. Grace and peace in union with Christ. 
holiness to the honor of Christ. As a called member of His church. Now, this is just the introduction. There are plenty of details to follow. But we are recipients of a call that before we get into reading all the rest of it, we we should decide how are you going to receive it? What's your stance towards this? Will you stand over it and evaluate, this I like, this not so much, this I'm going to skip, this, yeah, that's great. Will you stand over it or will you stand under it? Are you up for dying so that you can live? Up for surrendering so that you can triumph? Are you up for mourning? Mourning, O-U-R-N, mourning so that you can rejoice? Are you up for condemnation from the world for the sake of commendation from God? A surrendering of your own autonomy, your own rights, your own freedom, your own choice, your own liberty, so that you can be made truly free. Free to know and live with God and find life and give it away to others. Or will you stand over God's Word as judge? clinging to your own rights and separating from Him and from others when they cross you. Which way is it going to be? As recipients of God's call, we must be careful how we respond to Him. Let me pray. Father, I thank You That while I was still dead in sin and trespasses, You acted to make me alive in Christ. And for my brothers and sisters here, You did the same. Rebels that You redeemed. Objects of wrath that You made. Objects of mercy and grace when You made peace with us. Thank You for that. Thank You, thank You, thank You for that. And I pray, Father... Would You cause that to to sink deeply into our hearts? To affect a change inside of us that makes us soft, supple, humble before You. Willing to submit to You and Your Word. Easy to be entreated. Eager to make peace. Strident about maintaining the unity of the Spirit in that bond of peace. Would you make us a church like that? And Lord, I pray as we just kick off this book, I I ask you to use the book of 1 Corinthians, this portion of your word, I ask you to use it to build a church here with which you are pleased, that walks in holiness, submitted to you, enjoying the grace and peace that you have put on our lives, a stunning reality. Help us to live it and walk it and know it. We're your people before you. And we are in great need of you. And we are in need of you when we leave here. 
that this is going to be real and live in us. We are in need of You to, to cause it to, to flourish. So I pray, please help. Fasten us to You, Father, Son, and Spirit for the honor of Christ and for the good of us, Your people. I pray this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.